Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. Rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. That voice you heard in the intro was Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, who has been under fire from progressives in her party for not caving to pressure to end the filibuster in order to pass legislation. Democrats have a slim majority in the House and a tie-breaking majority in the Senate, except for the filibuster, which creates a 60-vote threshold for passing bills rather than a simple majority vote, which would be 51 out of 100. Example of a recent bill that failed to reach the supermajority was uh, the proposal to launch a bipartisan commission to investigate that riot at the Capitol uh, from January 6th. This bill got a majority vote of 54 senators, uh, but failed because of the filibuster requiring 60 votes. Cinema was absent from that vote, uh, which turned up the heat uh, of the critics in her own party. In this podcast episode, we're going to talk about the Democratic Party, how they're doing nationally, how they're shaping up here in Arizona ahead of the midterm elections, and the significance of the infighting we're seeing over the filibuster. Well, let's start with uh, an assessment of Joe Biden, who has now been president for uh, almost six months. And you've written some uh, specific critiques of his economic policies, uh, which we can get into a little bit. Uh, here, but uh, what is what would you say is your overall take on his performance so far as president, and has anything been different uh, about his presidency from what you expected going in? Uh, well, I, I disagree with his agenda um, almost comprehensively, um, but uh, putting that aside, uh, I think he has been um, very successful uh, early on in his presidency. He got the uh, COVID relief uh, bill that he wanted and the size of a federal commitment uh, that he was advocating. Uh, He is setting the agenda uh, for Congress. Uh, He is uh, running into resistance uh, in terms of getting it passed um, the way that he uh, has uh, introduced it. Uh, But Congress is working on the things uh, which he wants Congress to be working on. And agenda setting is the main thing that uh, a president uh, has within his power uh, to um, set. Uh, In terms of whether he is proceeding as I expected, uh, a little bit uh, yes, a little bit no. Um, Certainly... Uh, And to, in fairness to Biden, uh, everything that he is proposing and trying to get accomplished uh, was something during the campaign he advocated and was on his platform as could be found uh, in his, uh, on his website. Uh, However, uh, that wasn't really what he ran on. Uh, What he ran on was, I'm not Donald Trump. If you're tired of the endless political soap opera, vote for me. Uh, We can move beyond this. Uh, And uh, the aggressive agenda that he has advocated, uh, which is bound to 
harden uh, partisan divide uh, because it is highly ideological and highly left-leaning. Uh, uh, there's nothing in it that invites um, bipartisan support. Um, is um, I, I could have seen Biden not pressing forward on the full-fledged ideological agenda from the get-go and be more of an incrementalist. Um, but, um, again, in fairness to him, uh, this is all stuff that he did advocate uh, during the election. Do you think that he wishes he could be more centrist? Do you think he is in his heart, more centrist and wanting to do, I know he talked a lot about uh, doing bipartisan deals. And I know that even on the, uh, on the stimulus package, there was a, a counter proposal that was brought to my mind, seemed like in good faith by a group of Republicans. And that was just kind of brushed aside and, you know, it's not, it's not big enough. Here's what we're going to do. And they, they passed that with a reconciliation bill, right? Uh, they haven't passed the stimulus yet. The question is, are they going to through reconciliation? Um, but there, but early on, they they passed uh, the, the COVID relief. relief. The relief. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Relief. The, the the relief. Yeah. Um, but there was a group of Republicans that that came forward with a kind of a counter proposal that could have been a basis for for some bipartisan uh, negotiating, and and but instead they they did do it through the budget reconciliation, which which only requires. Uh, you know the fifty, the fifty Democrat votes. Um, do you think that he? That's a. Do you think that he is that big progressive uh, as a as a person, as a president, as a politician, or do you think he is he is act he is doing that because of the pressures, the progressive pressures of of the Democratic Party Th throughout? Well, Joe Biden is a. Uh, committed liberal. He, he believes that government should do more for more people. Uh, but um, outside of that, he has always throughout his political career been pretty much wherever smack dab in the middle of the Democratic Party happens to be. Uh, and smack dab middle of the Democratic Party today is um, very much on the progressive side of it. I think on infrastructure, we will get a test as to whether uh, Biden is going to uh, double down and stick with the ideological, ideologically pure agenda um, or uh, whether he will be open to more centrist bipartisan uh, compromise. His own direct negotiations uh, with Republicans uh, were unsuccessful, and he has called them off. But there's two other um, bipartisan efforts going on. Uh, Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney are leading the group. Uh, Kirsten Sinema is part of it within the Senate that was working in parallel to the discussions and negotiations that were going on directly with Biden. Uh, those uh, discussions continue, and that group plans to uh, produce an infrastructure proposal. There is also the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus in um, the House, uh, consisting, if memory serves, of 29 Republicans, 29 uh, Democrats. That group has produced the spending side of an infrastructure bill. 
that is uh, relatively close in overall numbers to what Biden was saying was his bottom line. Now, they haven't done the hard work of coming up with a bipartisan way of paying for all that spending. Um, but you do have two um, bipartisan efforts going on, and infrastructure is something on which there is uh, more of the opportunity for a uh, bipartisan consensus than on most of the rest of the Biden agenda. So we will see he is under, Biden is being put under pressure by the progressives to abandon all bipartisanship with respect to infrastructure and to try to slam that through on a reconciliation vote the way that they did with the COVID uh, relief package. So it'll be interesting to see whether Biden wants to bide his time and see whether these two independent uh, bipartisan efforts produce any fruit or whether he will um, want to go, want to uh, bypass uh, those processes and uh, rush to the floor with budget reconciliation. At some point, he's going to not have the votes to do that, that even if they try to do it with a pure uh, partisan vote, um, there will be some Democrats that won't be willing to go along with it. And infrastructure may be uh, one of those because he has a mo much more expansive definition of infrastructure than the traditional <laughs> one. Uh, and brick-and-mortar uh, Democrats uh, that want to bring home the bacon – uh, may not want to go along with the more expansive definition uh, rather than stick to the traditional view and uh, get uh, projects started and shovels of flying. Right. One more question about Biden. What about as we're as we're recording the week that we're recording, he's on his first international uh, trip uh, to Europe. How, what's been your assessment of him as a, as a commander-in-chief? Uh, what have you been noticing about the, about the foreign policy? Um, what's different now under Biden than, than what it was uh, under Trump? Biden has uh, been better on foreign policy than I had anticipated. Uh, during the campaign, he was um, – expressing a yearning uh, for a return to the days where the United States was leader of the free world and our lead was generally followed by other industrial democracies. And uh, we exercised um, power um, through uh, working with allies and through multilateral organizations. Uh, I don't think that those opportunities exist anymore in the modern world. I don't think that's a way that uh, American interests can be advanced. And Biden um, defines American interests far more expansively in terms of yeah. international affairs than I think is appropriate. However, um, in office, uh, the Biden administration has shown uh, heartening realism about uh, the nature of uh, Russia and the nature of China uh, in ways that are very different uh, than uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, exactly what the Biden administration will want to do uh, to advance U.S. interests vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and China is still sort of evolving, and his preferred approach 
developing allies, uh, to uh, develop, in, in essence, a sense of containment uh, around both, I, I don't think will bear fruit. So the question is, what will he have the United States do on its own? Uh, and um, I think that's still a story yet to be written. But uh, his, his foreign policy does seem grounded uh, in greater realism about the situation in the world and uh, the extent to which our blandishments can move uh, Russia and China than I anticipate. Do we need, does the United States need uh, European countries to be on our side or be al uh, strong allies in, 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 in pushing back the influence of, of China? I mean, China is, is an authoritarian country. They're, um, they've already, they've already kind of clamped down and, and on, on Hong Kong, uh, their influence economically and culturally is, is seen, uh, you know, throughout the world and even here in the, in the United States. Just this week, uh, there was some reports I was reading about how Germany and France are, are, are less interested in, in siding with the United States and being tough uh, against China. Their, their, their tendency is to make economic, you know, cooperation with, uh, with China. What, is, uh, what does that do to, to the U United States interest, the fact that, uh, that those Euro European countries are less willing to be um, on our team and our, uh, our tendency to want to be more, you know, in competition and, and uh, contain, as you said, containing the, the influence of China? If we could get the support of European countries and Southeastern uh, Asian uh, industrial democracies, such as uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, and uh, Australia, uh, in a joint effort vis-a-vis -vis China, it would be enormously more effective for many of the reasons uh, that you sketched. Um, I don't believe that's in the cards. Uh, I do not believe, wh wh while Europe is concerned about uh, the advancement of democratic governance around the world, uh, I don't think they're willing to do much uh, to uh, bring that about uh, or to uh, isolate or seek to contain um, a, an aggressive uh, authoritarian economic power uh, like China. I mean, the European U Union signed in recent months an investment treaty uh, with uh, China. So I think Europe will follow sort of the previous U.S. policy of engagement, the belief that the way that you change China's behavior is to engage with it and try to move it in uh, the right direction. I think that was a reasonable policy until um, Xi Jinping uh, became um, head of the government and head of the Communist Party. Uh, he, he has um, an aggressive gen agenda, and I don't think you know, engagement is going to move him. So instead, until there's leadership change in China, I don't think engagement is a policy that works. Where that leaves the United States is um, a very interesting and provocative question. Uh, if we can't rely 
on allies. And the situation that Japan and South Korea and Australia face uh, is even um, more dire or more pressing uh, than that which Europe faces vis-a-vis China. Uh, Although, paradoxically, I think those three countries are tougher uh, than the European countries with respect to to China. But but if if we're going to go it alone in large measure, which I think is what um, is the hand that we've been dealt, um, what we do uh, is a difficult uh, question. My own view, which I've advocated, is that we insulate ourselves to the maximum extent possible uh, from uh, China's influence on our economy and try to preserve democratic capitalism here. Uh, what we do with respect to the rest of the world, um, I think, is far more problematic, and uh, I don't see a lot of hope of uh, getting much accomplished outside of our own domestic policies designed to insulate ourselves uh, from Chinese influence right. on our own economy and system of government. Yeah, and we, we, did a, we did a podcast episode a little over a year ago, I think, about it was if any of our listeners want to go back if you missed that one, um, which talked a little bit about the his that that episode talked about the history of uh, of the communist expansion in, in in China and kind of goes into some of the cultural stuff. I think it was called um, <clears throat> did the MBA cave to China or something like that. <laughs> MBA was in the in in the title somewhere. It was. That was um, during the NBA China flap. Um, let's let's change gears here and, and um, talk more about this strategy that the Democrat, the National Democratic Party, seems to be running. You're seeing a lot of talking points about that democracy is in danger, democracy is in peril, and 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 the only thing that can save it is to abolish the filibuster and to pass this uh, sweeping election reform. Uh, bill HR one or they call it the For the People Act. I thought it was interesting that Cinema in the in the original clip we played of of Cinema, she was framing that she was framing her support for the filibuster as being protecting democracy because otherwise you're going to have um, these shifts back and forth and that it supposedly encourages bipartisanship. Um, do you think? Do you think that this strategy, that this, uh, you know, kind of the extreme danger, this has to happen or else, and let's bully everybody that's not totally on our side and their party, it seems like that's what they're, they're doing. Do you think that, the, that their goal, which is to abolish the filibuster and, and pass, this, pass this election reform law, do you think it comes from a genuine, like, desire for reform or do you see this as a lot of what conservatives would 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 view this as as just a power grab how do you see this maneuver uh and this this messaging and this uh from the democrats right now i think it's a combination of both um certainly uh, the accusation that the various changes in election laws that are being adopted by republican state legislatures um across the country amounts to voter suppression or, or Jim Crow laws is um, unfortunate uh, hyperbole and, and doesn't truly reflect the substance of what's in those, bo- in, in those laws. Uh, and in reality, 
many of the Republican states after these laws will actually have more liberal voting opportunities than Democratic Northeastern states, uh, some of which do not allow early voting at all. So it's in part, um, obviously, it must be a poll-tested attack line uh, that uh, works well. Um, I think they're genuinely opposed to the extent by Republicans in state legislatures across the the country uh, to impose additional requirements, um, for example, on early ballots. Uh, Right now, most states rely on people trying to match signatures, and some state legislatures are saying, well, why don't we beef that up by having some form of voter identification that's more reliable than just trying to match signatures. One can argue whether a need to provide that additional restriction has been uh, established or whether that's a good or a bad thing. You can't really argue that it's voter suppression for someone to cast a ballot to have to demonstrate that they are who they, they claim they are. Um, the uh, HR one, and there's a there's a comparable Senate bill, um, would, on a federal basis, uh, require all states or purport to require all states to adopt certain election procedures uh, that uh, Democrats think are advantageous to them: um, same day voter uh, registration. Um, In addition, there's already a federal requirement that when you uh, get your driver's license, you have to have the opportunity to sign up and register to vote. Uh, These bills would say anytime you interact uh, with a variety of state agencies, for instance, for food stamps or other income support programs, you have to also be given an opportunity uh, to sign up. And this would be for every single state. So this this, would be nationally, every single state would have these same mandatory same-day voter registration uh, opportunities to sign up for these. Yeah, there'd be a requirement. There'd be a certain number of days of early balloting, both by mail and in person. Um, There'll be uh, restrictions on how long uh, after the election is, after election day, that ballots can arrive and still be counted. Um, So yes, these are election procedures that Democrats perceive uh, favor them, that that they would attempt to impose on all states across um, the country. And and no uh, voter ID requirements. If if someone says that they're eligible to vote uh, and attests to that, then uh, they're eligible to vote. So no state would be allowed to have a voter ID requirement. Correct. Um, now, there, is, there are questions about the extent to which, uh, I mean, Congress clearly can't impose those requirements on elections for state offices. Uh, there's an argument that they can for uh, congressional elections. But there's a counter argument that some of those provisions go too far. Uh, and are unconstitutional. Um, so that's what the controversy's um, all about. And so, the, but they don't have the votes for for any of the filibuster. I, th- I think that um, 
at least two, and it sounds like a few more Democrats uh, than just Manchin and Cinema are against abolishing the filibuster. Mark Kelly, uh, we don't exactly know where he stands on abolishing the, the filibuster, uh, but um, but Cinema has been pretty pretty firm on this, and she's gotten a lot of pushback. Um, from her perspective, maybe in some independent and, and, and Republican perspective, she might be, you know, projecting an image of a, of a maverick and being independent thinker. Um, you are a conservative who is against the filibuster. I just think this is interesting. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that he... What's going on right now with this pressure campaign against Cinema and Mansion? That that even if they did maybe change their mind on the filibuster, or even if they were convinced that maybe the filibuster is is not doing what they think it does in terms of bipartisanship, they're not in a very good position to to back down right now. I mean, if she if Cinema were to change her mind now, it would be seen as just caving in to this to the to the. Uh, pressure from from progressives, um, but do you think? Um, I mean, how is this going to play out? Do you think that that uh, they're going to adjust to a reform? Is she going to stick to her guns on it? Uh, do you think she genuinely does believe in the bipartisanship um, that, that is encouraging bipartisanship? And I mean, the other thing that I just to kind of expand this question, I think it's funny that. She's willing to 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 do the partisan budget reconciliation process because to me that's just bypassing the filibuster requirement. So it's like, oh, I believe in this filibuster requirement that that requires sixty votes to to pass this. But if we can wiggle around it this way and 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 just do it on a simple majority with Democrats, if it's in budget reconciliation, then I'm I'm willing to do it. So I I don't know. I, I I'm wondering if there's. I don't know, is, is there something that's going to come up that's going to um, kind of be the apex of this? And, and I guess I'll simplify the question. Is the filibuster going to still be around in five years? Well, I, I believe that cinema is sincere in, in what she says, and she makes the same argument that John McCain and John Kyle and Jeff Flake have, have made um, in support of retaining the current filibuster uh, requirement. I, I do think that they're all mistaken, um, that the filibuster encourages partisanship rather than bipartisanship. Uh, just think how more, um, how much of a more positive place we would be in our politics if the reason that the uh, Biden agenda wasn't moving forward wasn't because of the filibuster um, that let's assume for a moment that doesn't exist, but because it can't get the votes. Right. Uh, that would be a far healthier place for our discussion to be uh, right now, because then you got to move on. If you ain't got the votes, you got to figure out something else to do and do something to get the votes. And I think for most of that agenda uh, outside the COVID relief bill, um, there wouldn't be the votes uh, if the filibuster uh, didn't exist. Um, the uh, finesse uh, has already been established. We've discussed it in the past, the difference between a real filibuster where people seize control of uh, the floor and 
talk incessantly, uh, preventing action on anything else, uh, including the bill that they're filibustering, uh, until they run out of steam. And the virtual filibuster, uh, where no one filibusters, the minority pretends that it's going to filibuster, the majority pretends to believe it, uh, that's a relatively recent development in uh, the uh, U.S. Senate. And that is what, not the real filibuster, the virtual filibuster, uh, is what has created a de facto 60-vote um, requirement for anything, um, which wasn't the practice in the U.S. Senate for most of its history uh, and finds no justification uh, in the U.S. Constitution. So the finesse is, okay, we'll, we'll keep the talking filibuster, uh, what I call the real filibuster, uh, but we'll get rid of the virtual filibuster. So that's the way that Manchin and Cinema could say, I'm sticking to my guns of keeping the filibuster, but as a practical matter, getting right. rid of it um, for uh, the stuff that, that matters. Because the talking filibuster simply slowed down action. It didn't keep action from ulti ultimately uh, taking place. Manchin, who currently says he wouldn't support any changes in the filibuster in the past has expressed interest in limiting it to a talking filibuster. Joe Biden has um, floated um, that particular reform. So if it goes, that's the way it will be finessed to enable Manchin and Cinema to save some face and to say they've stuck to their guns, the filibuster still exists, it just no longer has the effect. Uh, that the virtual filibuster now does. Yeah, I wonder if that's going to be coming up soon. Um, let's go to the final topic here and kind of zoom in here in Arizona and um, talk for a little bit about how Arizona Democrats are, are feeling heading into uh, midterms. There's a, lot, there's a lot up for grabs in 2022. Um, you got the governor's seat, uh, attorney general, superintendent of public instruction, um, Democrats are open to governor. Take, I, yeah, I said. I think I said governor. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, the they're looking to take back a majority in the in the state house and the senate. Um, how, how do you think that they should be feeling? If you were a Democrat, would you be feeling confident, optimistic, uh, heading into these races? Uh, in in some of the some of the candidates are already announcing their uh, their candidacies. Katie Hobbs for for governor, uh, Marco Lopez for governor. Uh, it can be the the primary um, incumbents in in the superintendent of public inst instruction. Um, yeah, what's your what's your take on the on the state races right now? Uh, I think the Democrats have reason to be very optimistic, uh, mostly by looking at the other side and what. <laughs> what terrible disarray uh, the Republicans are in. Um, uh, they, they are uh, stuck um, in, in a vice. I, I think a Republican in 2022 who doesn't say that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from uh, Trump will have a hard time winning a primary. And someone who says that it was stolen will have a very hard time uh, winning um, a general election. Uh, having said that, the, the, the Democrats in Arizona actually um, aren't that optimistic about their chances in 2022 because they believe that uh, the disarray on the border 
uh, hurts them uh, in Arizona um, very, very substantially. I have a hard time believing that immigration politics will trump the remaining presence of Donald Trump uh, on on the ballot. I, I think Democrats do have the upper hand, even with uh, the disarray that's on the border and the issue of immigration uh, and border security becoming more salient. Um, uh, Democrats still uh, lag behind Republicans in registration, but they've narrowed that. Uh, they have narrowed the turnout disadvantage that they historically have. And Trump uh, just alienates independence. Uh, and until the Republican Party gets beyond Trump, uh, I don't know that they um, have a conversation that they can start with independence. You think that the economy uh, is going to be, let's, let's just stay, stay local here. Let's say I'm not sure if the Republicans are going to be able to, to pass this flat tax or uh, I don't know what, what's going to happen with the, with the budget. Um, but how much does, does a, a solid economy um, change the fate of local local Democrats? Like let's say, let's say the economy uh, kind of like stagnates a little bit. You see higher inflation than, uh, than, than expected. Does that, uh, how much, does the combined force of like the economy plus the, plus the border, um, is that a, a combined uh, concern uh, for Democrats? And if so, what, what do they do about it? Well, the, the blame game um, will be, let's assume the economy is um, stagnant uh, and isn't performing well. Uh, then you've, you've got sort of a cross-current um, blame game. Uh, you have a president who's in charge at the national level. You got a Republican who's in charge at uh, the state level in, in Doug Ducey. I do believe that if um, we do see a resurgence of uh, inflation uh, and sort of the uh, push that the economy is getting uh, from the opening up uh, post-COVID sputters out, uh, I think that would help a Republican in a U.S. Senate race. Uh, I don't know that it affects down-ballot uh, that much. On the other hand, if there's a strong economy uh, and inflation remains tame, uh, I do believe that that strengthens the hand of Democrats in uh, the U.S. Senate race. I, again, I don't know what effect it would have on state races, uh, because um, Ducey can, I think, make a legitimate claim, and whoever the Republican nominee uh, can make a legitimate claim that Arizona's outperformed um, other states nationally, uh, and that Ducey policies are, uh, at least uh, in some substantive way, uh, contributed to that. Yeah, and a lot of these races probably depend on just the quality of the candidates, right? And and you know, head to head, you know, the quality of the candidates, and you know. Um, but if the specter if, of Trump haunts the Republican <laughs> that, Party, I I think it's hard to get to these other issues. And, and haunting it probably by by having some more radical Trump people 
you know, winning, winning primaries and running against running in some of these local, uh, legislative, uh, district races. Well, let's end it there. I don't have any sports questions today because I don't want to jinx anything that's <laughs> happening right now. <clears throat> the only thing I'll say is go sons. <laughs> and, um, and thanks everybody for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can you can find us on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, um, Pocket Cast, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thanks.